Okay, the Bible reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 6. So pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Tim. Thank you. Well, hi again, everyone. It's nice to see you. It's been a little while since I've been here. I, think, I don't think I did any Zoom messages. I got very tired of doing Zoom messages. So um, it's nice to see your faces. Um, how many of you remember from childhood that Lord's Prayer? Yeah, there's a bit missing at the back end of there, isn't there? What did we learn when we were little? Um, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. We're gonna... What's the last bit? For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, I want to talk about the glory of God today, and we'll, we'll touch on why it is that that little bit that's missing at the back end is actually the bit that I want to talk about. The power, the glory, the kingdom of God, and the notion of the glory of God. And, you know, we've been in a season where we've had a lot of focus on kingdoms, or at least queendoms, and the transition from queen to king and sovereignty and... There's a lot in the press about power, and there are a lot of um, a lot of what's going on in the world focuses around the use and abuse of power and the establishment of kingdoms and authorities and highly narcissistic power-absorbed individuals that are creating a great deal of pain. And men often who would love to see the glory go to themselves. So I want to talk about that this morning, using that little passage as a springboard. But to start off, um, a few weeks ago, actually a couple of months ago now, an announcement was made about a scientific discovery. Some of you will remember this. It was so significant and so breathtaking um, that astrophysicists you know, were talking about it, scientists were talking about it, cosmologists were talking about it. Um, it was so dramatic that the President of the United States held a special media conference to make it public. To a... Anyone remember what that might have been? You probably can't. Well, a breakthrough related to the very first images that had been captured by this new James Webb telescope, which had been put up into space, to replace the Hubble space telescope. An incredible piece of technology and engineering costing over $10 billion, developed over 30 years by scientific teams from all around the world, put together by European and Canadian space agencies along with NASA and launched from French Guiana actually in 2021, about the size and weight of a railway carriage, this telescope. The entire purpose of the telescope was to try and see deeper into space than had ever been seen before with a level of clarity that was greater than ever before, high-definition images. And once the telescope was in orbit and all the various algorithms and scientific calculations were fed into the guidance systems and the thousands of mirrors and digital analysing equipment was activated, 
they pointed the telescope into a tiny, tiny part of the sky. An equivalent area of the night sky that you would see if you took a grain of sand and held it at arm's length. So a piece of the night sky the size of a grain of sand held at arm's length. A vision. And these are the images that appeared out of that grain of sand in the night sky. And these cloudy images, they are cloudy because they look like clouds. And that's just going to scroll for a few minutes while I reflect on my reaction to that, and which was, among other things, you've been so ever long, and you're the only one that's ever seen it. And you are just giving people a glimpse into one grain of sand in the field of vision of the night sky. Holy smoke. Literally. How many stars would it take to make up pillars of clouds like that? Light years across. How could, how do we possibly do justice to the notion of the glory of God? For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. If the chief end of man is to glorify God, I do a rather pathetic job of it. Don't we? And yet, somehow in the story of the gospel, in this prayer of Jesus, and in the few verses at the back end that were added, most likely coming out of the conversations that these men had with Jesus, they couldn't help but add to the prayer a note of praise. For thine is the kingdom and the power. And it was taken from somewhere. It was actually taken from scripture. We'll see that in a moment. We're told over and over again, aren't we, that God is a God of revelation. I am convinced that the human ingenuity that God has given people to scientific exploration and to developing things and making things and extracting things out of the earth that can be cobbled together into a telescope and to have the power and capacity to thrust it up into orbit and then to turn it onto that grain of sand and then to pull back the curtain is one of God's ways of revealing himself. God. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, it says, they reveal knowledge. Psalm 19, without speech or language, without a sound to be heard, their voice has gone out to all... It's still going out to all the earth, so much so... That world leaders stop in awe and say, you, you've got to see what we've just found. 
a, a famous physicist, astrophysicist, who has been an atheist up until now, wrote, perhaps we're wrong. Perhaps there's an intelligent designer behind this magnificent cosmos. David wrote, didn't he? Lord, how, how majestic is your own infants you've established a stronghold. What is man that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Implication? But you do. You say that we are the joy of your creation. Psalm 72, blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Revelation, worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And in Revelation, of course, these great four living creatures, each of them with six wings, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, a perpetual song of praise because angels see these things and they see the entire sky, not just our little grain of sand. Biblical writers like the Apostle Paul apply this concept to God's universal general revelation, what theologians call general revelation. That is the stuff that God has done that every eye can see, if you can see, that renders human beings accountable to acknowledge God even if they've never known Christ. Their, their accountability is such because God has declared himself before them. So, lest you deny and consider that this is all some scientific accident, it is not. Walk carefully into denial. That's what the writers of the Bible are saying. Because you'll be accountable for that. Every time the sun goes down and you see the stars, you are accountable for the revelation of God's glory that you're seeing. And what's our response? Popular theology and pop theology and relatively you know, accessible stories of Jesus are all, are so often, are all about what he might do for me. And grace is a beautiful thing and it's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? Acceptance, hope, renewal out of brokenness. But it's an inadequate gospel if it's not one that bows the knee to the glory of God and acknowledges human sin and not just brokenness. Because God's message of redemption is not just that the glory of God is revealed in the heavens, but his ambition is that his glory will, will be revealed in us because we are made in his image, unlike creation. Our personhood, our capacity to think, to respond, to feel, this, this sense of moral oughtness, this innate sense of justice, the desire to be in community, to be connected, to have being, to have place. These are things God has created into the human experience because he wants himself, his personality, his nature, his love to be manifest. 
Human beings love the ocean, you know, the, the word glory, you know. I heard it during grand final about, you know, getting all the glory. This phrase has come up in sport. Bon Jovi, I wake up in the morning and raise my weary head. I got an old coat for a pillow and the earth was last night's bed. I don't know where I'm going, only God knows where I've been. I'm a devil on the run, a, a six-gun lover, a candle in the wind. You're brought into this world, but they say you're born in sin. Well, at least they've given me something. I'm going down in a blaze of glory. That'd be true. If you know something about New Testament studies and like that passage in the Lord's Prayer, you'd know that in the past hundred years, really significant strides have been made in the discovery of manuscripts and literacy, and which is why in modern translations, the Lord's Prayer that I learned, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever, doesn't exist. It's been taken out of modern translations. And there's a good reason for that, and that's because scholars have found that Earlier ancient texts of the New Testament don't have those lines in them. I don't quite know where they were added or under what circumstance there was this inherited tradition that that was a part of the Lord's Prayer. What's interesting is, as I said, those last three lines are not a prayer at all. They're words of praise. They're very highly likely to be words of praise that Jesus himself used, not so much when teaching his disciples to pray, but when he himself was praying. You see, you can teach someone to pray, and Jesus was asked to teach them, and he did. It's a model of prayer, isn't it? We've walked through that. The acknowledgement of God's sovereignty, the acknowledgement of our weakness, the dependence upon God for everyday life, for food, um, a prayer for forgiveness, a statement of justice, But you can t- so you can teach someone to pray. But you know you can only actually praise God when you know him. And interestingly, 1 Chronicles 9 is where we find those verses. King David, the king who essentially initiated the messianic line. And it was a prayer that David offered on the completion of the magnificent temple in ancient Jerusalem, one of the ancient wonders of the world. And here is David, Israel's greatest ever king. One of history's greatest ever rulers. A pretty messed up man, by the way. But a man blessed by extraordinary gifts, poetic creativity, a soldier, a war hero, an attractive and compelling man of immense charisma and immense power the father of a dynasty, the messianic dynasty, but it was David went to glorify God because you remember he had, he had this beautiful temple himself. Here I am in a house of cedar and Lord, you're basically in a box because back then the Ark of the Tabernacle was just a, a sacramental artifact with the Ten Commandments in it and David didn't like that and it had been stolen by the Philistines for yonks and until David remembered that it was sitting on the threshing floor of some random and sends these people to go and get it and they put it on a cart and they bring it back and someone touches it and they die and then David realises, crikey, I need to read the law about this and discovers that certain people needed to carry that thing and it needed to be consecrated and it needed to be done in a way that was deferential to the glory of God, not just some go and grab it, lads, and bring it back in. So David writes this beautiful psalm about enter into the gates, Father. He reads the scriptures, 
discovers the rules around the management of this symbol of God's glory and holiness and does it right and dances before God when, when this ark is brought back into Jerusalem. But he wants to build a proper house for God, like a big temple. And he has this dream about it and the prophet says, go ahead and do it, David. And then God says to the prophet, tell David, I don't want him to do it. I didn't ask for a building. Did I ever ask any of the elders of Israel for a temple for my name? I moved about in the tent, never asked them then. Tell David this, I will build a house for him. What was that house? Well, David didn't really know. It's not until the Apostle Paul when he comes in and says, the house of God is you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's why Jesus went into the temple and said, Father's going to tear this down. And David writes this magnificent... When, when all of this stuff is raised to build this building, and they did build it, the Temple of Solomon, and you know the story, that was eventually torn down. There's only one wall of it left. The Wailing Wall. O Lord, the God of our ancestor Israel, may you be praised forever, for yours is the greatness, the kingdom, the power, and the glory. On earth, saying to God... Yours is the kingdom. I, I don't know what you think about British politics or your view of the Constitution or the British monarchy, but I couldn't help but watch that service of the Queen's funeral and think about the degree to which that lady wanted the glory to go to God. Her testimony of the start of her reign as a young girl, praying that Christ would give her wisdom for her entire life, because that's where wisdom comes from. And the Bible says that. It raises them up, moves them on. It's the posture of humility, the same posture that we're called to exercise, to resist the insidious message of our culture that says it's all about you, and God says, no, it's not. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. The power and the glory. If you want to know whether or not the concept of the glory of God sits easily in your heart or your mind, ask yourself how you feel when you don't get the credit for something that you feel you deserve. If you're bypassed for something and someone else gets it. This creeping little voice that says, it's not fair. I've got five kids. What's the most common line ever heard in the history of a family? It's not fair. Our culture, our culture and the advertising industry feeds on the orientation of your heart to say it's not fair. Because we are entered into a spirit of comparison. 
and our identity is so often rooted in our sense of what is fair. But normally, when we compare ourselves, we compare ourselves to people who have more, not to those who have less. The Spirit of God is trying to generate in us a spirit of humility that says, Thank you, Father. All good things come from heaven above. You see me. You know me. You love me. Keep me with a heart of humility that I might glorify your name, not mine. We see that in the cross, don't we? Not my will, but your will be done. When Moses in Exodus 33 cries out to God, enmeshed in this complex, utterly self-absorbed, narcissistic community called Israel. And he's, he's just, he's had it with them. And God says, I've appointed you. Moses had seen God's glory and so had the people, the burning bush, the fire, the flame the, at night, manifestations of glory, and still they were self-centred. And Moses goes to God and says, Please, show us your glory. Remind us of who you are. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, Exodus 34, with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not even aware that his face was radiant because he had been with the Lord. And when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses and his radiant face, they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, to Aaron and the leaders, and he spoke to them. And afterwards they came near him. And when Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. And whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. But when he came out, he was able to tell the Israelites what had been commanded. And they saw that his face was radiant. Why was it radiant? Because he'd been with God. We're told in 2 Corinthians that we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image. And this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. That tells me that in spite of my self-centered, fickle, inadequate, stumbling faith, God is glorified when he sees the character of Christ slowly emerging in my life. And a space telescope can show us. It's almost overwhelming to think that he would invest himself. But that's what the book of Hebrews says. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power and after making purification, purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high why that the glory john 1 the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth and of, that, of course that beautiful passage in second corinthians you know um we sang a song at the end um every knee it's a, such an old song I sang it in youth group, but it's a song that is emotional for me because it reminds me. 
You know, you can get on the news tonight and do a catch-up of Ukraine and Russia, this tragic event that is replicating events that have happened throughout history. Aggressive, narcissistic... Alexander Putin is driven, in his own words, by an ambition to be the man who restores the glory of Russia. How's that going for you, Alexander? But you know what's more true? One day, that man will bow his knee to Jesus Christ. It would be so much better if he bowed his knee this side of heaven because it won't go well for him. And that's true of every person, isn't it? There are examples of men in the Bible like that. Daniel 4 talks about Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of his 12 months, he was walking around on the roof of the palace and the king spoke saying, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built for myself and my glory? By my, my, by my mighty power and the honour of my... Can you imagine a bloke saying this? This is what he said. And the honour of my majesty. <laughs> And while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven, Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and they will drive you from men, and your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field, and they'll make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times this shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and he gives those kingdoms to whomever he chooses. And that very hour the word was fulfilled, he was driven from men, ate grass like oxen, his body was wet with dew, which actually is a form of mental illness that scientists will tell you that happens when people uh, personify or appropriate the behaviours of animals. And at the end of the time, this is Nebuchadnezzar talking, he says, I lifted my eyes being returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honoured him who lives forever. For his dominion is everlasting. His kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are nothing. For he does according to his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one's prayer of praise. It's a great story. Most of us don't think of that story when we think of Nebuchadnezzar. He was redeemed because he submitted himself to the reality of the glory of God. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory. We see a similar thing in, in Acts 12, when Jay, Herod kills James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Um, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, in other words, this guy who was intoxicated by the adoration of people. That's a part of our culture. The degree to which young people are being sucked into meetups on TikTok or whatever it might be in their social media thread. And it's a domain of abuse and darkness, but it's all about what makes you important and gives you a sense of identity. And Jesus breaks in and says, you know, find your identity in me because I'm the one who made this stuff. And I know you, and I love you, and I've got you. You know, when Pontius Pilate... Actually, you know, people said that 
People said of Herod, by the way, the voice of God and not of a man. And in verse 23 in Acts 12, we read, and immediately an angel of the Lord struck him for saying that because he didn't give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and he died. How'd that go for you, Herod? Or Pontius Pilate in John 19, who says to Jesus, don't you know that I, I have the power of life and death over you? This is Pontius Pilate saying it to Jesus Christ, whom John 1 verse 1 says, made that. Nothing that was made was not made by him. Nothing. Jesus put those galaxies out there for us just to discover now. They were out there when Pontius was saying that. Can you imagine? Pontius Pilate saying to Jesus, do you not know how I've got the power of life and death over you? I can just imagine Jesus saying, Pontius, let me show you something. You silly little man. No authority. What he does say is no authority has been given to you that was not given to you by my father. I think as we reflect on the glory of God, we can take comfort in this promise. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. And my prayer would be that as you leave this morning, in the inadequacy and the finite perspective that we all have when we get, you know, drive home and make lunch or go out or do the laundry or whatever, is that God doesn't see you in the mundane ordinariness of your life. He sees you as a tiny reflection of his glory in a world of darkness. And he loves it that way. So be encouraged. Thine is the power. The king, the, thine is the glory. What is it? Thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory. There you go. Forever and ever. Amen. All right? How about we pray? We thank you, God, for reminding us in your word that you delight to show yourself, to reveal yourself not just to us, but through us. May that be so, we pray, for your glory and for our eternal good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everyone.